House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. We have a great, great guest here. Uh, another one in, a, in the lineup that you've had. It's been fantastic. Um, his book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole. And it's how to debunk conspiracy theories using fact, logic, and respect. Came out September last year, and I've just started listening to it. Fantastic. Mick West, thank you for being here. I'm very glad to be here. So, um, Mick, um, how do you uh, debunk these theories um, using respect? <laughs> Well, the respect part is all about establishing effective communication with people. You know, it's very easy to, generally very easy to debunk a conspiracy theory on a factual basis, just examining, like, the claims and then pointing out where they're wrong. But the difficulty that arises on how do you communicate this, uh, this explanation, this debunk to the people who actually believe in the conspiracy theories and the way to do that is by talking to them in a way that they don't push back against you. And to do that, you've got to give them a, a degree of respect. Now, that doesn't mean you have to pretend to agree with them. You can explain to them that you don't agree with them. But you've got to kind of respect that from their point of view, this theory seems to make sense. And then you've got to try to figure out why it makes sense to them and then try to work from there. So this is this is sort of a big deal that you're working on because you know in my work I try to study why people believe these things that they do, mm -hmm. um, but people always ask me so what do you do to change somebody's mind and, and at that point I just sort of throw up my arms yeah. and say I don't know, um, but what are some of the rhetorical strategies that a person might use um, if they have a family member who's you know gone down the rabbit hole per se and wants to sort of bring them back. Right. Like, is there any magic bullet? Is there a, a strategy? I mean, I understand being respectful, but what, what what would that entail more specifically? Well, first of all, you've got to get past the defensiveness. Uh, because uh, there is this stigma of being a conspiracy theorist, and uh, to some degree rightfully so, like it is, you know, a lot of these things are ridiculous theories. But uh, if you come into that saying, yeah, this theory is ridiculous, I'm not going to listen to it, I'm just going to like tell you what the real thing is, then you get this pushback. So you've got to get past that initial pushback. And the way to do that is kind of like with kid gloves. You've really got to take your time. You can't just uh, go in and start telling them it's ridiculous. You've got to ask them questions. Let them explain to you why they believe what they believe. And really what you're trying to do there is try to determine... Uh, two things. You try to determine, first of all, what common ground you have, because you really want to build the conversation on common ground. So you try to find things that you both agree on, uh, like you, you might both agree that there's a lot of corruption in the government and that uh, that we shouldn't trust, trust we shouldn't trust politicians, you know, which is a kind of a thing that most people would agree upon. And then the second thing is that you have to try to find where they draw the line. You have to find find the things that they don't actually believe in and then find what's the closest thing to that that they do actually believe in. And then you can focus in on this line, which I call the, the, the demarcation line, which is a line between things that they think are ridiculous uh, pseudoscience and conspiracy theories and things they think that are very, very reasonable. And if you find that line, it gives you an area 
in which you know that what you are saying can tip the balance. If you don't focus around that line, you could be focusing on things that they're going to dismiss anyway or things that are very, very solid in their belief. So you've got to kind of find, find an edge in a way. So focus on things that they might uh, be persuaded on rather than things they definitely won't be persuaded upon. So I tend to find that people, you know, they, they cluster their conspiracy theories around people that they don't like. So it's people on their side are never guilty of anything, and if they are, it can be explained away. But people on the other side, you know, they're the bad ones, and it takes significantly more evidence to sort of let let those people off the hook. Um, do you seem to find that in your work, that people are very selective with who the villains are? It kind of depends uh, on how extreme the conspiracy theory is. When you're talking about things as extreme as, say, uh, chemtrails mm. or the flat earth conspiracy theory, you don't really get this kind of polarization. You get, obviously, people thinking that the people in power are yeah. the ones responsible for it, but you don't get the type of uh, political polarization that you get in some theories. Uh, for example, the 9-11 conspiracy theories were very, uh, very biased uh, in demographic terms to Democrats, uh, in the early years of the theory, because they, uh, the, you know, obviously the Republicans were in power at the time, and so they thought this is evil plot by Bush and Cheney. Now there's still a certain degree of that, but it's kind of shifted away now because we've had administrations that have been, uh, you know, we had the, the Obama administration, and uh, nothing, nothing got done uh, in terms of revealing the secrets of 9/11. So yeah. now I think it's shifted over more to just distrust of the government rather than distrust of one political party. Yeah. So how do you deal with something like chemtrails? So, you know, I never thought about chemtrails that that much. I thought it was ridiculous on its face. I didn't know why I thought that mm -hmm. um, until somebody said to me, you know, if you were going to put poison up in the sky, you know, to, to brainwash people or whatever the theory is, um, it's the worst way to do it. Because almost anything you put 30,000 feet up in the air is going to wind up in the ocean and not really having the intended effect. So is, is that sort of something that you might um, give to a chemtrail conspiracy theorist? No, he hits? no, no okay. you wouldn't. Uh, I mean, in fact, that's actually a, a great misconception about the chemtrail theory. The chemtrail okay. theory isn't about putting poison in the, in the sky and poisoning people. That's kind of a subset of things that like a few people believe, you know, the type of people who believe the government is trying to put nanorobots in our blood to control us. <laughs> but the majority of people who believe in the chemtrail theory think that it's uh, a covert form of geoengineering. Okay. They think it's the government trying to alter the climate and it's something to do with global warming. Uh, opinions vary on whether they're trying to create global warming or try to prevent a global warming catastrophe secretly. But basically it's all about uh, this, this theory of climate change and global warming. So if you start out talking about, you know, oh, the, they wouldn't poison us and it would spread too far, <laughs> then you kind of lost them because they, they probably didn't think that anyway. Okay. So you've got to, this is, you know, why it's important to listen to the conspiracy theorists and ask them, you know, what is the actual theory that you believe in, because there's, there's variants of these theories. You know, with other things like 9-11, there's lots of different variants. So in the chemtrails, there's a few different variants, but this is, this is the main one. So you know, the chemtrail theory is based on a few very specific misconceptions 
And those are the things you want to try to address with, with people. And the main one is that uh, contrails cannot persist. People think that normal contrails should quickly fade away, and if they don't, then it's a chemtrail. And the way I address that is I show them uh, old books on the weather. I've got a collection of old books on the weather and books on clouds. And they all discuss, uh, all these books that I have all discuss uh, contrails and their formation. And these are books going back to the 1940s. And every single one of these books say that contrails sometimes disappear quickly and sometimes can persist for a long time. And so if you show people this, you know, quite compelling evidence, this is something that actually does make them think. And I've, I've heard a lot of people actually tell me that this one, it's actually a video I made showing all these books, was actually quite uh, instrumental in getting them to realize that chemtrails wasn't a thing. So couldn't your ardent conspiracy theorists come back and say, well... You know, this just shows that they've been, you know, uh, up to this since the 1940s. They do. And in fact, some, <laughs> some of them go back even further. Uh, they will quote, um, uh, what's his name? The, uh, the famous scalar technology, uh, scientist. I can't think of his name right now, but, uh, uh, they, they go back, you know, to the early days of science and say, oh, this might have been going on in the late 1800s even. And if you, if you show them a photograph from the late 1800s of clouds, you know, the very earliest photos of clouds, sometimes you get photos of uh, ripples in mm -hmm. the sky. And they think ripples in the sky uh, are an indication of, uh, uh, of what they call scalar technology, uh, which is exemplified by the HARP conspiracy theory nowadays, which is about this big radio transmitter in Alaska. Uh, and then they will, because they're so in, involved in this theory, they will say, oh, well, you know, it must have been... Uh, must have been Tesla uh, back in the 1800s doing this, uh, but that's that's a small minority. You know, it's the kind of the extreme cases in the conspiracy theory. Most people, uh, when you show them things like all these books on clouds, will actually respond fairly well. It'll give them something to think about. So um, I'll, I'll throw a little bit of data at you. So I did some polling here in Florida. Um, last year, and we asked people if they thought the government could control the weather, and specifically if they could control things like hurricanes and tornadoes and whatnot. And we had about 15% of Floridians say yes, and another 20% mm -hmm. not sure. So it seems like there's a lot of people who are either, you know, convinced of this or at least, you know, need to be convinced the other way. <laughs> Um, that this is yeah. a true thing. Like, what would you say to somebody like that? I mean, do you just come out and say, you know, the government doesn't create hurricanes and then send them to get you? Um, is, well, there, is, yeah, is there some other do, strategy? What I would do there is try to get them to look at the actual uh, state of the research into things like controlling hurricanes and controlling the weather. I mean, you know, we can actually control the weather in a small way by cloud seeding. This is something that's been done commonly since the 1950s. Uh, I don't think you do it in Florida, uh, but it's certainly something that's done here, like very close to where I live in the, the, the northern Sierras of California. It's quite commonly done. They do cloud seeding with small planes. They spray chemicals into the sky, and it makes the clouds rain a bit more or snow a bit more. At least that's the theory. I mean, this is something that's actually being done. And there have been experiments trying to steer hurricanes. Uh, there was a, uh, an experiment called uh, Project Storm Fury, which I believe was in the 60s or 70s, quite a while ago. 
uh, and they tried dropping, uh, I think, the same thing again, silver iodide, into uh, hurricanes on one side to try to make it go in a certain direction. But they found that they really couldn't control the direction of the hurricanes, and because there's so many issues with accidentally getting the hurricane going in the wrong direction, <laughs> they basically uh, yeah, gave up on that idea. But uh, you know, if you look at what's actually been done, I think it gives you a good perspective on on what is possible. And you know, when people say, "Can the government control the weather?" There's a certain amount of truth in answering yes, because the government could decide to do lots and lots of cloud seeding, and it would actually change the weather in in uh, in a small way in certain areas. So you, I think you have to be quite careful with a question like that, because the person answering it will have a very different understanding of what it's mean, what, what you mean. Do you mean control every aspect of the weather 24 hours a day all year round, or do you mean occasionally alter a little bit of the weather? So I've had some emails recently, and maybe you could help me out with this, but I, I, the first one I got was from a family, and their son had, uh, uh, had a college degree, a good job, and then decided to quit his job and his career in finance and move home into the parents' basement to um, be a QAnon YouTuber. Mm-hmm. And he said that this was important for him to do because um, there was going to be a great awakening and the public was going to need his help to understand everything that was going to happen. So he needed to be ready for this. So that's on, on one thing. And they were very concerned that the son had been brainwashed into some sort of cult and didn't quite understand what was going on. And then the other, I had a, a woman emailing me, telling me her husband had become a, a QAnon conspiracy theorist, and and I, I think she was looking for a way out of the relationship. I didn't want to carry on that conversation too much yeah. further than that. Well, all I said was, I, I don't really know what to tell you. You probably know him better than I do. Um, what's the sort of thing you would say to, to families in these instances where they think the person has just gone too far in, and it's not just you know, arguing one theory anymore, but it almost what would seem to be an entire lifestyle. Yeah, it's it's a very difficult situation. When you've got a family member, uh, you know, sometimes I think the easiest thing and perhaps the best thing is just to let them do their own thing. Yeah, if they're not bothering you too much, uh, just because they hold these very strange ideas that you completely disagree with, uh, then you know, perhaps it's best just to let them run with it for a while. Now, with QAnon in particular, QAnon is something that's going to be time-limited. Uh, it is going to morph over time, but a lot of the QAnon stuff is about making very specific uh, predictions about the future. Uh, there were all these sealed indictments that are going to be released, or the, the Mueller report was going to uh, you know, result in the arrest of the Hollywood uh, you know, uh, evil elite, you know, things that were predicted that didn't come to pass. Uh, it's not something like like 9-11, which is a theory about something in the past. This is a theory about something essentially in the future. And if it doesn't come to pass, then a lot of the people who believe in QAnon are just going to realize that there's nothing to it and they will move on. Now, of course, yeah, I don't know what's going on with these individuals. Uh, mm. So it's very difficult to like you know, give any specific advice. But uh, my basic advice is always to try not to alienate the person. Try to listen to them you know, with respect but with disagreement and try to figure out why they believe what they believe. And the more communication you have with people, uh, you know, the better the end result is going to be. 
you talked about cults, and if you look into the advice that people give to family members or people who are in cults, I don't really think of QAnon as a cult, but there's some similarities. The advice that experts in cults give is just simply to keep talking to that person. You've got to keep some degree of being grounded in reality, but you've got to be careful not to lose that link with them. So you mm. have to tread lightly, but keep going. Because that could essentially be the only link they have outside of their little network, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the family link uh, can be a very strong link, and it can, uh, to a degree, like override some of these disagreements. And you have to give it time. You know, these things can take a long time. You know, don't get disheartened because, like, it, you know, for for months even, nothing might seem to be happening. If you have that link and you keep communicating, that does seem to help, and that does seem to be something that uh, is a common thread in. Uh, in people's stories that I talked to about how they got out of the rabbit hole is that uh, somebody helped them out. See, in this particular case, it's sort of, I mean, obviously the family is going to, I mean, he's, the kid was moving home, so he was going to remain contact. I guess something I thought about in the short term was, you know, if you join, you know, the Kennedy conspiracy theory movement and you are you know, putting out Kennedy conspiracy theories. That's not that big of a deal because that seems to be a majority belief, at least in the U.S. Um, but if you are actively engaging in QAnon conspiracy theories on YouTube and there's an open record of you doing this, I mean, those those theories are, are not just fringe, but they're really sort of wacky stuff when you're talking about Hillary Clinton's running a satanic child sex ring and... You know, people who come out and say this is true, I can only imagine what kind of negative consequences this would have on them later in life when they apply for jobs or, or whatnot. Yeah, that's true. I mean, people, you know, obviously from their perspective, though, they don't see it like that. They see it as they're part of this movement that is going to have a revolution soon, so they're going to be on the right side of history. <laughs> you know, they figure that, you know, once Q has been revealed as being this, this savior person, then you know, they'll uh, they'll you know, they'll they'll win and they'll be worse off if they didn't do anything. So you know it's not really an argument you can use with them. Uh, you could say perhaps you know what if you are wrong, but since they're so deeply convinced that they are right, you know, that's not really an argument that's going to run with them. So how about issues where you have husbands and wives sort of disagreeing about issues like this is you know obviously they have to communicate with each other or else mm -hmm. the marriage is going to go down the tubes pretty quick um how can they get over something like this is there um something one spouse can do to the other i mean obviously they have to be somewhat sympathetic and open to communication but i think you know, being in that sort of tight relationship would also present its its own sort of um, pitfalls. Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. But I think a lot of times you do get couples who, for example, uh, have different political beliefs. Uh, one could be conservative and one could be liberal. And they manage to work it out. They, they understand each other's uh, differences and they, they, they live with it. You know, all couples are not made up of people who are identical. You're always going to have some differences with your, your spouse or your partner. Uh, and so a lot of people uh, manage to work with those differences. Because if you, you, know, you, you love someone and you, you respect them, even if you disagree with them, you're still loving like you know, a, a whole bunch of them 
a whole bunch of, of that person, but there's a little bit of them that you disagree with. So people can work around it. Obviously, though, it could well become a problem if you don't have that you know, very solid fundamental relationship and you start arguing all the time about these things, then you know, it's going to lead to problems. But yeah, I, I don't think that's entirely something that's specific to uh, conspiracy theories. You know, people mm. break up all the time because of differences. Mm. Uh, and you know, maybe they're going to break up because of their, uh, their conspiracy theory differences. But you know, maybe also it's something that you can, you can fix to a degree by talking to them about it and trying to, uh, to bring them around. It's, it, it varies a lot by individual. You can't really give generic broad advice for this. Now, what if somebody um, was believed in 9-11 truth conspiracy theories? Now, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, these, these used to poll around 20, 25 percent, but they've, in some polls, they're making an up, upswing. Um, I would say because more Republicans are starting to believe in these theories now than, than mm-hmm. used to. Um, I have found that the 9-11 truthers are the most difficult people to talk to. Um, they're just absolutely convinced of their beliefs and of their righteousness. Um, and probably if, of any conspiracy theorists, the ones I don't want to talk to ever. Um, I find the alien believers to be the nicest people, strangely <laughs> really? enough. <laughs> um, what do you do I, with somebody? What do you do with a 9-11 truther? How can you engage yeah. with them in a productive way? I mean, that theory seems to be one yeah. that's, that's just very... Uh, it just gets people, it gets them angry. Um, yeah. I, I try to focus on uh, the more scientific aspects of it. And if you try to get into things like the motivation and the politics and things like that and, uh, you know, the insurance and you know, the more uh, indeterminate type things, it's, it's a bit fiddly. But if you can get into things like how fast the buildings collapsed and what was in the dust afterwards, you know, a lot of these people are actually really interested in these you know, arcane topics. Uh, I did this talk on iron microspheres, uh, and that is something that you know, people who were 9-11 truthers found to be quite reasonable. Some of them, like I said, it changed their minds about that, pe- that piece of evidence. Uh, I, on my podcast, I just had a, an extensive two-hour interview uh, with a, a 9-11 truther who used to be a, a hardcore 9-11 truther and he's now kind of wavering and in large part because he's, he's been talking to me and like listening to my stuff and you know, he, he would have taken the, the iron microspheres evidence as being solid before but because I've kind of explained to him patiently and carefully you know, why this actually isn't evidence, he's, he's shifted. It takes a long time, though. I started talking to this guy like nearly two years ago. Uh, you, you can't just give people the evidence and expect them to flip. You have to kind of uh, give them time so you can give them the evidence and let it, like, you know, grow a seed, or you keep working on them. But it, you know, it takes a long time. But yeah, you, you talk about them being the, the worst to talk to. I haven't really had that experience. I, I get a lot of bad... Actually, I, I've got a lot of... Uh, the worst reactions I've had have actually been from the alien people, which is kind of the opposite of you. I think it depends who you talk to. You know, a lot of these uh, theories, they're populated by kind of two groups, one of which is uh, often old men, especially in the 9-11 truth community, 
uh, a lot of the people like the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth they are like old guys who are retired who've got nothing better to do. Mm. And then you have the, the younger, more diverse uh, groups of people who are much more emotional about the topic, and those are the ones who are going to uh, call you names. But, yeah, I've, I've had some very good conversations with uh, people in the 9-11 Truth community, and I think a lot of them are, are open uh, to good discussion. I mean, that's been my experience with the 9-11 architects and engineers, is that it, it tends to be people who are retired or mm. um, not active engineers anymore. Um, but what's so funny about that group, to me, is that people look at it as if, you know, this is an authoritative source of information. So it must be all architects and engineers have come yeah. to this conclusion. And one thing I point out to people is that, you know, they have... You know, less than a thousand members, I think is what it said on the website last time I checked. But there's some number of millions of, of engineers and architects in the country. Exactly. So we're talking about a tiny subset of people, um, here. Um, so let's switch this a little bit. So a new one that keeps popping up quite a bit is the flat earth idea. I don't know how mm -hmm. many people believe this, but it, it gets a lot of media play and, there's a pretty neat um, documentary on Netflix about it, um, about about these folks. I mean, if, if you bumped into any of them, and, and how would you convince someone who thinks the Earth is flat, despite all the evidence, you know, that, that they could be wrong? It is a very tricky uh, thing to do. I'm actually going to speak at a Flat Earth conference uh, on May the 26th uh, in Las Vegas, which is going to be a very interesting experience. They invited me because they wanted to show that they're open to all ideas, but flat earthers, as you know, are some of the most resistant uh, people when it comes to contradicting their beliefs. And part of the reason is they basically reject every single argument from authority, which means they basically reject all of science. Mm. So it makes it very difficult to actually... Uh, you know, give them an explanation for something based on science. Some of them even reject uh, mathematics and trigonometry as being some kind of instrument of the devil. Uh, but they, they really want to have evidence that they can see for themselves. So with that, I try to focus on things that you can actually go out and look at yourself. Uh, like if, uh, if people are in Los Angeles, for example, I will always encourage them to go down to the beach, you know, any of the beaches down there on a clear day, and look at Catalina Island. You know, take a photograph of it from uh, uh, from the beach. Take another photograph of it from higher up, say on the cliffs of uh, of Santa Monica, and you will see that there's a difference between uh, what you see low down and what you see high up, uh, which shows that Catalina has been hidden behind the curve of the Earth. If you give them these practical uh, demonstrations, that can be compelling. However, what happens is you, the more practical demonstrations you give to them, the more excuses they make, the more convoluted their theory becomes. They will talk about how it's actually a function of perspective or it's a function of the light bending or it's a combination of, of uh, perspective and refraction. So if you give them an explanation, they will layer something on top of that to explain that explanation, and you'll give them some other explanation using something completely different, like, for example, the observation of the stars rotating around the southern celestial pole, which would be basically impossible on a flat Earth, then they will try to figure out some kind of weird way in which the light is bent through some kind of obscure atmospheric prism uh, to explain that. 
So it's it's a difficult one, but uh, the people who genuinely were into it and genuinely get out of it, they it kind of varies. Like some of them get out because they see the weight of the evidence really isn't uh, in their favor. The guy that I interviewed for my book, he got out of it really because not because he understood the evidence but because he saw that the people on his side were just repeating the same things over and over again and they were ignoring the responses. And he realized at some point that they didn't really have a solid uh, basis for their argument. But it took him uh, several years to get out. It's it's very tricky. And of course, it's very, very much conflated by the fact uh, that people in that movement are not serious a lot of the time. They're just joking they're just trolling it's hard to say like how many people in the, even in this conference that i'm going to will actually believe that the earth is flat or they just enjoy uh you know poking debunkers and seeing how they react so let me ask you a question so what if you show up to the conference and convince everyone that the earth isn't flat what do they do for the rest of the conference <laughs> well it's only two days <laughs> so and it's in vegas so they can uh, they go out and have a good time <laughs> Uh, that that might serve them better than uh, than doing this. So, one thing you mentioned, people can always find reasons to sort of reject whatever they want if they're motivated mm -hmm. to do so. I mean, how, is there a way to sort of put those defenses down? Because I guess in some way, no matter no matter the evidence, no matter how ironclad it is, people can accept it or not accept it, and yeah. they can come up with reasons. I mean, I imagine that if you speak at a Flat Earth conference, you're going to have people there who um, are just going to say you're some sort of NASA shill, or mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're a satanic person trying to hide, it, hide the true glory of God. Um, how do you reach them? I mean, I know it's more difficult, but is there, is there some way to get even, p even past those mechanisms? Yeah, I think... Uh what you've got to do is try to show them stuff that they were missing. There's a lot of the people who uh, believe these, these theories, the, the flat earth theories, they're based on very superficial evidence. They very, very quickly flit from one point to the next. And if you're just going down a list of points and you, you give them some explanation and they respond and then you move on to the next one, you're not going um, to make any progress. You really have to focus on individual points a little bit more and show them as much material material as possible. Like some of them will point to uh, photographs of the moon, for example, and they, they, will, they will show you like a crappy little photo that they took with their, their cell phone, and they will, they will say that it proves something, like something about the brightness or how the angle isn't quite right uh, of the shadow. Uh, but you can actually show them you know, vastly higher resolution photographs of the moon, like and photographs I took myself. I could actually you know, go out there with them and take a photograph of the moon and you know, show them things like the shadows of the mountains of the moon. Uh, and if you if you show them that they're basing their information on very very low quality uh, information or photos or whatever, and there's all this other stuff that you could look at, all these like different things you can consider, uh, then it really can have an effect. Like another thing I do is like encourage them to look at the International Space Station. A lot of them uh, they assume the space station is fake, obviously because it's in space, but you can actually predict when the space station is going to fly over your house, and if you have a good enough camera, you can actually take photographs of the, the space station, and you can see the shape of it. You can see the uh, the shape of the solar panels, 
And if they've never thought about this before or never done it or never seen these photos, then seeing something new that they haven't seen before can actually nudge them in the right direction. So do you think a lot of what's happening now isn't so much about conspiracy theory per se, but it's really about a rejection of expertise wholesale? Where people say, you know, yeah, we have experts who study something, but who cares? Their expertise isn't really all that good, and those people at worst may be shills for some shadowy interest. I mean, could it just be that people don't want to listen to others anymore, and they, they have a lack of, of respect for um, the expertise that's earned with education and studying something? I'm not sure about that. I think there is still a lot of respect for science. Uh, I don't have any numbers right to hand, but I've seen polls where you know, people do like, respect the opinions of scientists. I think what we're seeing more is uh, an amplification of you know, long-standing distrust of authority that's, uh, that's large in, in some circles. Uh, and I think it's being amplified in large part by social media and by YouTube. You know, there's a big problem with with YouTube essentially working on a, an addiction model uh, and Facebook also working on an addiction model, which is something that they're, they're trying to move away from, but it's still very much an issue. Uh, they try to figure out what will keep people uh, reading things on Facebook or watching videos on Facebook or watching videos on YouTube. And the addictive videos... Uh, for some people, are these these conspiracy theory videos? So I think you know, this this addiction model of social media is actually amplifying these tendencies that people have to distrust authority and manifesting as these conspiracy theories. So I watched a, a YouTube video recently. I think it was filmed some time ago, but it's uh, famed biologist Richard Dawkins, and he's having a conversation, or at least trying to have a conversation with a hardcore creationist and there was just nothing he could say that was going mm -hmm. to change her mind and, and she said strangely enough she kept saying over and over again um, if I saw the evidence I would change my mind but there's no evidence and his response over and over again was just go to a museum <laughs> it's right there in front of you um, is it, it, it you know so in a case like that is it that people just don't value evidence or is that they're they're hiding from evidence uh, um, yeah I think there's certainly a degree of that but I think also it's very unrealistic to expect her to change her mind uh, even with you know, Richard Dawkins being in the room with her like people do not change their minds over one conversation in mm. fact you know, probably it had the uh, the reverse effect like a degree of backfire there where because she was essentially under attack by Richard Dawkins as she saw it she would be uh, you know, hardening her mind against his arguments, thinking that uh, he was trying to trick her. Uh, yeah, and the idea of like just saying, just go to a museum, that's not going to work. You know, you can't. <laughs> uh, people aren't going to go to a museum. You know, people say things like, why don't you take a class in physics or you know, study astronomy, and then you'll see the Earth is flat. You know, that's not going to do anything. No one's going to take a class in anything. Um, so yeah, you can tell them that the, the the evidence is there, but really you have to show them that evidence. Uh, you need to actually take the time to figure out what it is they believe in and what is the evidence that they are missing and then bring that evidence to them. They're really not going to go out and look for it themselves just because you told them to.
So, is it the case that I could bring somebody books or information, or do I really have to demonstrate something to them? I mean, I guess I, I got an email last week that went right into the... I have a folder called Kooks, <laughs> and I tell my wife, I say, if I ever don't make it home one night, just go to that folder, and it's probably one of them has me locked in a trunk somewhere. <laughs> but I was getting some late-night emails about people... Um, you know, challenging me on snarky comments I've made about jet fuel melting steel and whatnot. And they want evidence to show that, you know, the planes really could bring down the towers. Yeah. And I don't even know how to engage that. And I, you know, I just shifted into another folder so I don't have to. Um, but, you know, where could I go with something like that? Do I do I show them a book? Do I show them, you know, some reports that have been made? Or do I have to blow up a building to show them what, you know, that it can actually fall? Yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah, the World Trade Center collapsing is a tricky one because the World Trade Centers were uniquely large and you're not going to get anything that's analogous. Uh, but there are things you can show them. There, there's a, a, a great video uh, by the National Geographic uh, channel where they they took a steel beam and they put it over a a pit filled with jet fuel and then they lit the jet fuel and in just about five minutes or so the beam uh, sagged in the bottom uh, sagged down and like collapsed uh, so there are there are actually demonstrations like that that people may not be aware of and again it's this thing like finding what what are they missing what are they missing that makes them actually give credence to these uh, these theories, and there, you know, there are things that you can show them. Uh, if they, you know, believe in this iron microspheres evidence, you could show them uh, my my talk on iron microspheres. Uh, there's there's actually quite a few debunking videos on things like the the speed of the collapse of the buildings. You can show them that they they like videos. You, know, you think sometimes like you have to give them this this short answer. But these are people who got into conspiracy theories because they watched videos that are sometimes several hours long. And they basically consume these videos. So they've probably got the time to actually watch videos. And so if you can give them uh, a video that addresses a point that's pivotal in their misunderstanding, then uh, that, that is something that can work. But again, it's something that you have to give them time. You have to give them give it time for that to sink in it's not going to uh, take straight away and you might have to show them 20 videos or give them you know books are okay if they're uh, uh, nice and straightforward but you can't force someone to read a book it's a lot easier to give them a link of a video they might not watch it but it's far more likely than showing them a book yeah yeah so i yeah i i guess i i find that um, when I talk to, to journalists, one of the things that they often say to me is, well, how do you convince these people? Because they just can't be convinced. And I, I often say back, you know, nobody wants to be convinced of anything, conspiracy mm -hmm. theorists or not. It's not like you're going to put a, you know, two people of different religions into a room and have them walk out with some consensus after a few minutes. It's, it's just not going to happen. Um, so... Uh, is do you think that that when you're going after people's beliefs in these specific theories, are you just chipping away at that theory, or is there something bigger that you're chipping away at? I mean, is it is it just that hey, jet fuel can melt steel, or is it or is it that you know mm -hmm. the federal government doesn't kill three thousand 
of its own people on a random Tuesday. Yeah, it's it's, it's a large uh, a large base of beliefs that they have. Uh, it's been referred to as a, a crippled epistemology, like a crippled knowledge system, where the way in which they think about the world is is based on a limited set of information sources and information sources which are often incorrect. It's like if you only got your your information about the world from watching uh, one highly polarized uh, news outlet like like Breitbart, for example, which is a kind of a, a very right wing uh, outlet. You get this very crippled understanding of the world because you're only getting it from a perspective that what someone is trying to push a particular point of view. Uh, and that covers like a whole number of bases. It's not just simply things like the science. It is things like trust of government and uh, perhaps a misunderstanding about uh, the size of government and the size of the elite in the world. The one thing I do is I try to show people how many billionaires there are in the world and how diverse the actual wealth and power of the world is amongst the, uh, the rich elite of the world. And people sometimes, you know, they, they think that there's just this shadowy elite of like 10 guys in a room somewhere in New York that controls the entire world. And if you try to broaden their perspective, try to give them a, a better grounding for an understanding of the world, that actually can be helpful, like trying to show them things like, you know, there, there are these rich people in China who are doing things, there's rich people in Russia who are doing things, there's a whole bunch of different uh, rich people in the United States, including the, the tech billionaires, uh, who are you know, generally very different from the oil industry billionaires. So you don't have this homogenous evil force that is ruling the world. You have this, this very chaotic, uh, diverse uh, bunch of people who are essentially uh, you know, running the upper parts of the world, and showing that to people gives them perspective. This is perhaps one of the most um, annoying conspiracy theories that I that I run into, and it takes different forms. Like somebody might say the one percent controls everything, or it's the point one percent, or um, but there's just ne there's never been a lot of evidence showing that these people work together mm -hmm. to achieve particular ends and actually get their way. I mean, I don't doubt that the richer somebody gets, the more power they can exert over the political system. Um, but that's a very different argument than saying, you know, they control things in some concerted way with others like themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And the rich people are essentially working in their own self-interest and in the interest of their family. And sure, they want to prop up the system that... Uh, yeah, allows them to be rich, so they want to have like lower tax taxes and less regulation on the on industries. But some of them don't. Some of them actually want more taxes. Some of them want uh, more regulation. Uh, so it's not like you, know, you you've got all these people who are agreeing on what to do. They're each uh, basing their actions on their own individual uh, desires and their own individual uh, philosophies and ideologies. And it's all different. And what comes out is you know the mess that we see. In government, uh, which is you know, basically being influenced by all these lobbyists, but there are all these different lobbyists who are trying to get different things. It's not like they're all trying to do exactly the same thing. You get environment industry, uh, the environment movement lobbyists. You get uh, oil industry lobbyists, and then you get people in the you know, the tech industry, and they're all they're all going for different things, and they're all going for their own things. They're not going for the goals of the 
Illuminati. They're going for the goals of Bill Gates or the goals of Mark Zuckerberg or the, the goals of Alden Sheldon, uh, whatever his name is, the casino guy. Uh, so, yeah, just try to try to tell people about this. Try to give them a broader basis of understanding of the world, and you know, hopefully, it will take after a while. Because I think some of this, to me, is is largely you know they hear it over and over again from politicians, whether it's Corbyn or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, where they're always saying rigged, 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 mm -hmm. everything is rigged, and it's they did it, it's that group, the 1% or, or some other rich group that did it. Um, and it, it sort of leaves out the messiness of the system. And even And even then, you know, you still hear these theories that are so convoluted, like Bernie Sanders, for example, says the 1% rigged the entire system, so only they win. Then out of the other side of his mouth, he'll say they're free market gamblers. And it's just like, well, it can't be both, right? But it's just, yeah. it's just he's appealing to this anti-rich, anti-elitist viewpoint that to me doesn't have so much to do with the, you know, the rationality of the theory itself, but just with this anti-anti-elite sentiment. And and yeah. I wonder how to how how do you overcome that? Um, it's not that I want people to trust elites all the time. We shouldn't. Um, particularly political elites, but at, at the same token, we shouldn't be automatically biased against them and think they're, you know, conspirators in some mass plot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you know, with with Bernie Sanders, uh, he's he has to simplify things, and he has to amplify certain things. So what you're getting from him, or even people like Elizabeth Warren, is going to be, uh, you know, to a degree, a simplification of something that they're trying to present a certain case. Uh, and the problem is that most people aren't really that interested in the details of these things. Mm. They, they'd like to have someone to dislike. They like to have an enemy. And it's, it's quite difficult to actually explain the workings of government and industry and the, the military industrial complex or the, uh, the tech industrial complex, uh, which is actually you know, how Washington works. You know, people talk about the deep state as if uh, it's, you know, there's some kind of secret cabal of liberals running Hollywood and the military. Uh, <laughs> but really, you know, the deep state is really the military-industrial complex and Washington, you know, the Washington machine uh, for getting you know, policy done, getting laws changed, getting regulations changed, getting tax, uh, taxes changed, and the lobbyists from industry. And then the revolving door that we have in Washington uh, where people get jobs in regulatory agencies, in part because of their experience in an industry, and then they they work there, perhaps do some favors for their friends, uh, and then they leave, and then they get a job uh, in the industry that they were once regulating. Mm -hmm. You know, this this is you know really the uh, the fundamental problem with American politics, is that we've got this this huge symbiotic relationship between industry and uh, and government. And I think that is something that you can focus on as being a very real problem and that people can actually get their teeth into. And this is one of the things I try to uh, steer people towards. You know, a large part of why I try to debunk conspiracy theories is that I want them to focus on real issues. Mm. And this problem of our essentially corrupt government, you know, de facto corrupt even if the individuals themselves some of them are very well-meaning, uh, is a real problem. And if you can point that out to people who are once conspiracy theorists and activists, uh, they might move over and start trying to do something about that. So is it, it's, it's, 
It's about getting rid of people's conspiracy theories, but instead replacing them with more real, more tangible, more evidence-based problems that they could work on solving. Indeed, which in some cases are actual conspiracies that you could say, <laughs> in a way, uh, like politicians taking bribes to create legislation mm. is a conspiracy theory. But we all know that that's essentially what happens, that they are, they are influenced uh, by various uh, lobbies and campaign contributions, and their, their legislation does result from that. So you know, it's a conspiracy theory, yeah, but it's an extremely well, well-founded one. It's right at the bottom of the conspiracy theory scale, and it's something I think that yeah, we can get the actual conspiracy theorists, like 9-11 conspiracy theorists, and even chemtrail conspiracy theorists, even flat earthers, if we can push them towards that end of the conspiracy spectrum, then we'll be able to do some good. Okay, let's 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 give people your contact information. Now you have a podcast and a website, so um, perhaps give that out so people can listen if they want to hear more. Yeah, my podcast is Tales from the Rabbit Hole, which you can get at uh, tftrh.com, and my website is metabunk metabunk.org, and you can find me uh, on online on Twitter and Facebook at Mick West, and uh, yeah, that's it. Okay, we'll have that linked up as well as your book on our own website. And uh, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. It's been very interesting. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.